0: Hello and welcome to An Endless Pursuit, a podcast on innovation from Bristol Water. My name is Chris Thomas and I look after The Quest, our open innovation program that's on a never-ending pursuit for progress. As part of this, I've been speaking with a number of internal and external experts to explore where the industry should be headed. We want to share our findings and are publishing them in this podcast. The series explores five themes from our innovation quest and today's theme is the resources and environment. So according to some sources, just getting into work today, I used over 33,000 gallons of water. That is an enormous number to fathom. To help get a sense of scale, my shower contributed only about 17 of those gallons. The rest came from water required to produce my clothes, my food, and the car that I travelled to work in. Water scarcity is an issue of ever-increasing importance as city infrastructures and increasing populations stretch those finite resources. In today's episode, I'm joined by Patrick Bolmer and Chad Stadden, As we wrestle with this challenge and look at how we can effectively balance supply and demand of our precious water resources. Patrick Balmer is the head of water resources and environment at Bristol Water and has responsibility for the company's overall environmental performance which includes the long and short-term water resource planning and energy management. He's a chartered environmentalist and a fellow of the institution of environmental science with 28 years experience in the water industry. Chad Stadden is the Professor of Resource Economics and Policy in the Department for Geography and Environmental Management at the University of Western England and Director of the International Water Security Network. Chad's research revolves around the social, political and economic issues related to the promotion of sustainable water services. He's authored over 75 published works and given more than 150 lectures around the world and is frequently called on to contribute to water policy at national and global scales. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you'd like to let us know what you think, send us an email at innovation at bristolwater.co.uk. Chad, Patrick, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you. We're talking on the theme of resources and the environment. So with today's heightened awareness of climate change and the limited resources that our planet has, this is a topic that many have become quite passionate about. Um, And it'd be really good to talk around how we effectively tread that fine balance between supply and demand. Uh, when it comes to managing our water resources, now earlier this year, Sir James Bevan, the CEO of the Environment Agency, um, uh, warned that within twenty five years, England's not going to have enough water to meet demand, which seems amazing. and he wants wasting water to become as unacceptable as blowing smoke in the face of baby, it's quite strong words so th- th- they're very bold statements, Chad, I wonder if you can elaborate on the scale of the challenge that the u k is facing at this point in in managing its water resources and and Why utility companies should be focusing on this now? Well, I think the simple response,
1: Chris, is that we're a relatively small island with a relatively large population, most of whom want to live in the southerly parts. Most of the water is in the northerly parts. This means that there's a a disproportionate pressure on the water resources of the south um, and less pressure on the water resources of the north. From a water point of view, we need either to move everybody north or to move the water south. The former is not going to happen. And the latter, though occasionally talked about, would be ruinously expensive and environmentally devastating. But the other thing that Sir James said in his speech, which I think was quite interesting, was he said that the challenge of balancing supply and demand is not just a technical one. He said it's an existential one, Mm. by which he seemed to be suggesting that there's a much deeper challenge that won't be addressed just by technical means. So it's not just the case that the engineers can get together in a huddle and work out the supply side solutions and the demand side solutions and everything will be fine. To say that this is an existential crisis suggests that we need a more fundamental rethink of our relationship with water and that that is the only route, in his view, towards a more water
0: sustainable, uh, balanced future. What, What does he mean by that? relationship? or what, do you, what, do you, what would you take that to be?
1: He spoke in his speech mostly about using less, getting by with less. And as, as you pointed out, changing the moral dynamic and the moral loadings of water use, making water waste a little bit like doing other unacceptable things like blowing smoke in the face of a baby. Uh, whereas now water waste is perhaps barely recognized and certainly not a behavior that would generate the sorts of opprobrium that littering or uh, or other public disorder offenses uh, would generate. I think that's quite a, quite an interesting way of framing the challenge. He's what he's saying is that it's not a technical challenge; it's a moral one, ultimately.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll come on to I think how we we want to engage people around that and, and and what that might look like to give us a sense of the implications of this. Pa- Patrick, what's the what's the impact on the environment of, of not getting this right?
2: I think there's an interesting point and I think we'd like to rewind a little bit about that uh, the scale of the challenge because when Sir James was talking about, you know, he used the term the jaws of death, but also in that speech because a couple of my members of the team were, were there at the launch of that particular event and he did then say, yeah, that, that's great. I've deliberately used that term in order to get people's attention. We do have this slight, dichotomy, I think, in the UK, in that on the one hand, we do have a stable water supply system, we have people who are reliably getting water. But on the other hand, in order to get people's attention, in order to get people to realise that change is actually required, the language that seems to be necessary in order to get the attention and get people to think, right, actually, we need to change direction It then drops into something really extreme. So we start talking, for instance, about the situation that arose in Cape Town over the last couple of years, where effectively they were genuinely facing the prospect of a whole large city actually running out of water. And I've got one friend whose family live in Cape Town, and they said the behaviors there were were starting to get quite extreme, both in terms of people actually responding and doing something about their water consumption, but also in the sense of people still going, oh, well, never mind, I've got a borehole, I'm going to pump it down and destroy this local nature reserve, which did happen. And that was, you know, it was completely wiped out as a result of people, of wealthy people, who had access to water. So with water, it seems that it's something where, in order to get people's attention at all, extreme language often has to be used. And I think the reality is that we are talking about Often quite subtle things, but that genuine change is required. And you asked about what the, you know, what's the environmental impact of it. Well, it's absolutely true that if you get this wrong, you can get this really wrong. And the one that always tends to be in people's minds is the Aral Sea. And I think one of the things that drives that sort of impact is actually when people are lying about what's happening. So I was talking to uh, one colleague of mine who was actually involved in work on the Aral Sea and work on on the water flows going down there. And he was investigating the data available. And when he sent one member of his team to investigate, she got one set of data, sent another member of the team to investigate, he got another set of data that made it look like the world was coming to an end. And it turned out actually the people involved, the woman he sent was German, and the German team were regarded as enforcers. So they just told her whatever would make her go away. The guy that he sent was Uzbek, and the local people who were managing that river were, you know, had, a, had a racial prejudice against Uzbeks, and so they told him whatever would upset him most. And so the reality was that the monitoring wasn't happening at all. So if you get this wrong, if you don't monitor and manage what's going on in the environment, you can cause an environmental catastrophe like the Aral Sea. But the reality is that the impacts we actually have in the UK are on things like damaging the flows in chalk streams. They're on preventing the travel of endangered species up watercourses as a result of the obstructions along them when new resources are created, that kind of thing. So we have this dichotomy. On the one hand, our challenges are often relatively subtle, and we're talking about an environment that is degraded but isn't destroyed. On the other hand, in order to get people to change and in order to get things done, we start to have to use language of extremes, whilst at the same time, of course, we're facing climate change, which genuinely is an extreme risk. So there's a whole spread of the the level of effect, the level of cause, and and actually getting the change made is the tricky part.
0: Mm. So we've got the use of, I guess, provocative and extreme language to drive a bit of engagement. We've got a change in the approach that people take to water and making it a moral issue and 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 seeking that. So there's there's a couple of approaches there. We're lucky to partner with the University of West England and actually we've got the largest study in Europe on on custom behaviour and water use, which is which is great. W- what are we learning out of that study that's helping with this issue and and how we can control that demand? Okay. Uh, before I comment on
1: that, I'd like to pick up on something that Patrick said, which I think is quite interesting. In the absence of a clear and present danger. Sir James has had to create an existential danger. This isn't 1976 when the country was facing a very severe, clear and present danger in the form of a a summer drought, uh, where we were living through a Cape Town-style situation. Uh, And even in, in relatively wet Bristol, water managers at that time were working day to day to make sure they could still maintain flows in taps and in systems. Really interesting stories there. But the point is they were dealing with something that everybody understood because it was happening to them every day. The danger with creating a a kind of an existential crisis is that it's less apparent how real that is to people because you may say we're facing an existential crisis and you may use lurid language like jaws of death, but the reality is this week it's mostly rained and the taps always flow The water is always abundant and always clean. So where's the crisis? And I think the risk in the current uh, political climate is that this language of crisis might come to be devalued by a public that simply doesn't see the world the same way and begins to discount suggestions of crisis uh, because, perhaps to use another metaphor, we're crying wolf when there isn't exactly a wolf in the room. Whereas Patrick pointed out, the impacts are there and science can measure them, but they're often quite subtle and slow. They happen slowly. The degradation of a chalk stream through over-abstraction, unless the over-abstraction is 100% of flow volumes, what in reality we're talking about are are relatively subtle impacts that interrupt the benthic layer at the bottom of of a stream and because of the benthic layer is important for the, the web of life in the stream, you know, those, those have ripple impacts throughout the food web within the chalk stream. But these are subtle. These are difficult to measure and very difficult to communicate to a non-specialist public. And I think building on that actually, these,
2: the subtle changes, it does not mean to say they can't be big. It's just that they will, you know, I remember as a child going out into the garden and seeing the buddleia that we had in the garden smothered with butterflies. And nowadays, you do not see as many butterflies as you used to do. There will be some patches of the UK where you may see them. But because of agricultural changes in how land is managed, there's been that just steady, but it's like sort of 1% or 2% a year. But my childhood was 45 years ago. And 1% or 2% over 45 years is enough to make a really, really big difference. And I think the climate change example actually is a really, really good one because we we do, I think we're starting to understand that climate change is something that is this existential risk, but that we won't cure it or cause it by driving one car for 100 miles, but we will contribute to it. And that is the part, I think, that is the challenge. It's it's something that I think is starting to happen to a certain extent, but there's a huge risk that it'll slide back. But I think it's starting to happen that people are starting to feel, yeah, I am actually part of this. I'm not, I don't, you know, I, as a person, as a consumer of everything that I consume, I don't stand outside the problems. I'm not separate. I'm not also the single unique cause. It's not all my own personal fault. And it's also not all within my personal grasp to cure. But nonetheless, I play a part. So it's a little bit like voting. An individual vote doesn't make a difference, but an electorate does. And I think we need to start thinking about what we're doing is we're kind of voting for or against the environment, but we're not actually the supremo
0: ourselves. So one of the awareness raising initiatives we've got then is Resource West, which is about bringing together a number of parties, all of whom who have a vested interest and a level of influence around uh, these kind of issues. Um, how are we using that then to, I guess, drive what you're getting towards in, in terms of almost pooling a collective power that that recognise that collective contribution to, to this issue? Well, as Jack Koofe said, people protect what they care about.
2: And in the case of... Of Bristol Water, we we care about the population that we serve, we care about the environment that we use, but there are other things, there are other stakeholders in the area who also have a, a particular interest and a particular care about an aspect of all of that. So for instance, Bristol Waste, they care very deeply for business reasons, which are absolutely legitimate, about how waste recycling is managed, about food waste management, about the rates of landfill, the rates of energy recovery from waste and the amount of waste that's just created to start with. Bristol Energy and all the other energy companies in this area, they care very much about being the energy company that people want to go to. And part of what people want now is help in being energy efficient. So what we're doing with Resource West is to look at not just water but all of the resource issues for this area And then say, back to that voter and and vote principle, you know, we're a big vote in this area, but we're not the only vote. And we are not the only organization that cares about a particular thing. Once we bring together organizations and players who do care about those things and who want to protect and develop particular aspects of their business and aspects of the service they provide, you can hit a lot harder than if you're just coming through from one direction. If a message about resource efficiency is coming through from multiple directions, it normalizes it. And so that people start to think, oh, yeah, it's just what you do. Because ultimately, and certainly what we want to try and deliver through something like Resource West is that approach where people you know, don't think that they're being clever or special by having a well-insulated house, a water-efficient house, a house where they're reducing the amount of waste. That They don't think that's a big deal. They just go, well, yeah, that's what you do. You know, I don't poison my kids every day either. I don't reverse over the cat. I don't do that either. I mean, what's up with you guys? Why are you going on about this? This is just normal. And that's what we want to do is get to the point of just thinking, yeah, doing the right thing. It's well, of course you do. What are you talking about?
0: There's some great sensationalist headlines that you could use there. I think that (laughs) I can have some fun with that. Resource (laughs) West. Don't reverse
1: over your cat. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I want to pick up on a couple of things you said that I think are really interesting. One is that with Resource West as a, as a vehicle, we can move away from the thinking in silos. You know, I think we would be making a mistake if we tried to address water problems solely as water problems. And there is a risk there because, you know, Bristol Water is a water company. Bristol Energy is an energy company. Bristol Waste is a waste company. But we have an increasing amount of really good science that suggests that often the solution to a water problem might be in energy, or the solution to an energy problem might be in water. We we use a word to describe this. We call these nexus relationships. Nexus being the the fancy, high-scoring Scrabble word that talks about connections between things, the amount of energy it takes to create water, the amount of water it takes to create energy, and how we can, by thinking together, optimize in multiple domains. Now, that's the sort of language that I think technical specialists and academics tend to speak. But I think... A lot of our solutions for the 21st century will be found there in exploiting and understanding or understanding and then exploiting these nexus interactions.
0: Can you you give us a a tangible example of where that nexus interaction might play out to to influence how our resources are used? Um, I know Patrick
1: can say much more about this but one of your biggest um, uh, operational costs as a water company is energy. Energy inputs because water is heavy It it costs a lot to pump it from location A to location B. It costs a lot to pump it through treatment stations. It costs a lot to move it from treatment stations into distribution networks. And then, of course, it costs a lot to collect it and move it through the waste processing stream. The extent to which, as an operator, your company can understand its energy use and then maybe begin to reduce its energy dependency, its dependency on fossil fuels and increase its dependence and reliance on sustainable sources of energy as well as getting by with less you know you become part of a nexus solution to resource problems that are not just water problems i'm thinking about um, water treatment stations and solar power patrick
2: absolutely yes we've got to, uh, we're trying to run on the principle of having solar powered water systems as much as we can inevitably with a business that operates on a 24 hour a day basis then the intermittent nature of renewables is such that it's extremely difficult to either to produce enough energy or produce enough reliable energy. But that's always been an argument from the past, really. That's always been a, a, a reason not to do it. We're now flipped over very, very much into the attitude of thinking, well, we will do it, and we are doing it. Mm. So we're just, we've got over a megawatt of solar power Installed at one of our largest sites, and we are looking to extend this. We're going to be sort of doubling or tripling the amount of solar PV that we've got on sites. So there's absolutely. But one of the biggest things that we can do as a business is to manage what we do as efficiently as possible. So we get through about 80 gigawatt hours of energy per year, which is one of those sort of great big units that nobody really quite gets, and, and it's and it's a diff, it's a difficult one to to communicate. But as you know. We're using a base load of about nine megawatts, and our customers, you know, an, an average person, will be using about, our average household will probably be using about ten kilowatts through the day. So it's it's an awful lot that, that we are getting through. One of the ways that we can manage that is to is basically to tweak the system. It's to it's to tune things so that instead of having systems that effectively operate in hydraulic conflicts. It's back to that idea of water being heavy stuff. So this is something we're implementing at the moment. It's going to be going live later on this year is a fully live system optimizer, which will be able to take how water storage is being managed throughout the system because we have tanks within our network that we top up during the day and then they'll, they'll drain down through the day. And then the right time for pumping, the most efficient time and time, place to use your, use your pumps But moving through from that, one of the biggest links between water and energy actually is the fact that most of the water that gets supplied to people gets heated up in some form or another. So, okay, yeah, we flush our loos, that's cold water. We drink water, that's cold water. But then we cook, that's hot water. We wash up, that's hot water. We wash our clothes, that's hot water. We wash our dishes, that's hot water. And particularly nowadays, we use showers and that's hot water. And so... One figure that's been produced by the Energy Saving Trust is that the carbon footprint of hot water in the UK is the same as the carbon footprint of aviation in the UK. And when you think the way that people will say, oh, I don't fly, I I would never fly because of the carbon footprint, and then obviously go home and have a shower because everybody smells quite nice, by and large, so people are washing. I think that is something where we've probably got the clearest link between water and energy, because if you can help people to become more water efficient and still have a really nice life with a shower whenever you want, but it's not gushing out like a tropical thunderstorm then then you can have a really big nexus
1: link I, th- I think that's that's the other problem with Sir James's approach here. He creates an existential threat in the absence of a of an obvious and irrefutable clear and present danger, and then there's a series of suggestions like sitting in three inches of tepid water rather than having a warm shower uh, as something we all need to do as part of this new moral economy of water. I think you you really hit the nail right on the head, Patrick, when you said this is about behavior change that still allows people to have a comfortable life, to do the things they need to do with water and energy, but smarter than we're currently doing it, partly by understanding these nexus efficiencies, these trade-offs between water and energy which are about water that's cold, uh, water that's hot, but also water under pressure because pressure costs energy uh, to manage. I think we need to do that. I think we also need to think about things like self-supply where at probably community and development scale, it's possible for developments to supply some of their own water needs. And that would relieve pressure on the, the, the public utilities. It won't be the case necessarily that Bristol Water needs to provide 100% of the water going into a new development of X-hundreds or thousands of homes, uh, but rather only X minus Y percent, 70% or 80%, because 20% is provided by roof gardening or rainwater harvesting that's flushed through what we call greywater systems. Now, let's face it. Right now, we flush toilets with drinking water, which seems perverse and a little bit odd. Can we not imagine a, a, a system where non-drinking uses use water that's treated to a lower standard? Well, actually, we can. There are systems in the world that use dual pipe supply, uh, particularly in the southwest of the United States, in China, and in other areas that are experiencing rapid urbanization. These systems have become fairly common, so-called purple pipe systems, where the water that's supplied through the purple pipe is not drinking quality, and it's supplied specifically for toilet flushing and garden irrigation, two traditionally heavy users of public water supply. Now, here in the UK, with a large existing stock of housing, that's quite hard to reverse engineer, but it's less difficult to engineer into developments of hundreds and thousands of homes, which is something we're certainly talking about in the west of England. We want the west of England to be a growth pole. We want more people to come here and we want them to bring their talent and their innovation we want them to come and live in bristol and contribute to the bristol economy and society and in so doing we're going to need to think about how we supply them with water should we not therefore be thinking about radical alternatives that involve dual supply that involve rainwater harvesting and self-supply and thereby taking a little bit of pressure off uh, the poor old water company which historically has had to provide 100 percent of water needs to drinking water standard, notwithstanding the fact that the vast majority of the water does not need to be that expensively treated because it's being used for non-drinking purposes and going straight down the plug hole. I think that point about
2: local self-supply is particularly important, actually, because one of the issues with a dual supply, if you're running at a distance, then effectively you don't really have much of an environmental saving. Because most of the environmental footprint of water supply isn't in making it clean, it's in getting it from one place to another place when it's stuff that weighs one tonne per cubic meter. All of that drops away once you're talking about local self-supply. And I think your point Chad you about you know, this this is actually fairly common practice in the world is one that we as a UK water industry, I think we really need to open our eyes to this. Because the mantra in the UK at the moment, is really that rainwater harvesting is hard, it's tricky, and particularly it's really easy to get wrong. And so, and when I, when I say get wrong, it's what typically tends to happen, and in fact it's happened with 100% of the rainwater systems that I've encountered through our, our own regulation team, is that there will be some kind of misconnection so that people will end up ultimately with rainwater systems coming out of the drinking water tap. But that's just a technical issue. That's not some kind of fundamental, unmanageable thing about these things. And I think that's probably the hurdle that we need to step over. But that point with, with retrofit, if you are you're absolutely right, if you're looking at existing housing stock, the idea, for instance, of digging a great big tank into the ground next to a row of terraced houses, is probably never going to be a good environmental idea. But the idea of building in right from scratch on a new development and thinking, right, how do we make this as water efficient as we possibly can? Thinking about what are the peaks. So, for instance, during very hot weather, we tend to get our highest peaks in demand. We're not actually quite sure what drives it. We think and assume that it's garden watering. Seems intuitively the most likely one. Well, that's where rainwater harvesting could have the biggest impact because suddenly you could have houses where actually the the demand just remains relatively stable. And that's a very different thing to plan for than a home where you think, right, well, okay, the per capita consumption at the moment is 130 litres per person per day. But you know what? Actually, on the 17th of July, it'll go to three times that because everybody will be watering their lawn. Notwithstanding the fact you shouldn't water lawns anyway. But nonetheless, it's having that kind of starting from thinking about how you manage this And the new developments thinking, right, let's build this in just as a principle that could have a really,
0: really big difference. If it's very much about being a technical challenge, are there any real kind of leading or emerging innovations we're seeing in that space that actually show some real promise to solving perhaps the rainwater harvesting issue?
2: I think that rainwater harvesting technology is actually probably so well established. I mean, it's a very simple principle. You have a surface onto which rain falls and you get the water from it. And then you try and make sure that the water that you store doesn't go horrible because it's got things rotting in it. Once you've sorted out those things, the thing I think that we need to resolve in the UK is not so much about the technical innovation. It's about management innovation. It's about housing developers saying, right, because at the moment, it's quite understandable. If you're a developer, you want to build a house, sell it, walk away with the money, and then build the next house, sell that, walk away with that money. It's much more difficult to have a situation where somebody remains in some way responsible for that system overall, whether it's the, the drainage system and swales and ponds and things like that or whether it is a rainwater harvesting system that will need a cleaning regime, that will need a pump management regime. Effectively, if you've got a rainwater harvesting system, you're a very, very small water company. And they don't just manage and maintain themselves. The idea of a pipe, of course, is that it's just a pipe. If you're getting a pipe from the water company, you don't have to think about it yourself because somebody else is doing it for you. So that's probably the big change, is getting that collective
1: responsibility. You use the term Chris, management challenges, um, and that's partly what Patrick was responding to. I think also there are regulatory challenges here. And the analogy I often use when I'm talking about this with my students is look at other areas where regulation of the built environment has been changed to achieve safety or, or other kinds of public goods, like the regulation of electrical installations, or the regulations of insulation. There was a time in the past when we didn't worry about those things and the regulations were relatively lax. And then there was a a decision point taken around thermal efficiency in um, houses, dwellings, and suddenly it became illegal to produce houses that didn't perform to at least a threshold standard of thermal regulation. In other words, that performance standard becomes baked in to the regulations and house builders who are under pressure to compete in a fairly difficult marketplace, now all have to build to at least that standard. You will not get a building that performs more poorly in thermal efficiency than that standard. We've seen it in the choice of materials used, uh, with glass and windows and thermal efficiency, electrical installations. You know, I think we need to up our game in terms of the way we think about water and developments and develop new standards that bake in the possibility of these threshold efficiencies becoming the norm again, such that at some point in the future we'll, we'll sit down with some builders and some people who've bought houses and some people from the planning office and we'll all say, you know what, this is the way we do things. Isn't it strange that we didn't used to do them this way? How odd is that?
0: There's a number of lines that the, the regulator has, has been exploring this issue as well. The other angle on it is trying to help quantify the value of water and using upstream reform to do that. And that comes back a little bit to big ideas around that that energy and water nexus, where if you have cheaper water in some part of the UK, you might encourage heavy water users to congregate around that area rather than in other areas of the UK. Is that a realistic approach to take, or is that a bit too far removed, a bit like the the sort of existential crisis we were discussing earlier, to to have have a a suitable dent? I think this is a case where that encouragement
2: is is probably going to be something that that can have a bit of a nudge effect. But I think that as with a lot of things around water, it doesn't of itself tend to be the driving cost. So you might have an issue about the literal physical availability of water if you wanted to set up um, some kind of smelting works you probably wouldn't be able to do it in London, not just because of the fact that you would have such expensive land and and pollution issues that would throw it out, but you might also simply not have the water available to you and you just wouldn't be able to do it there. But when you come to other, perhaps slightly less intensive industries, then their drive is going to be from a a huge number of drivers. It's not going to be just the, the one thing. So I think it is perhaps one risk that we run in the water industry is we have this fanciful notion that ours is the only driver. And of course it's not. Ours is one of a multitude of drivers, a multitude of different costs. It's a multitude of different impacts. And it's a bit like the value of water in one area being different than the value of water in another area. It does become very, very granular and very, very case-specific because there is a reason that there isn't a huge financial center in the Highlands of Scotland. And it's it's not because people don't like the Highlands of Scotland. It will be because it's a long way. It's difficult to access it. But whereas it's not a big coincidence that all of that stuff is down in London, which is the bit of the UK, which is kind of closest to continental Europe. And it's where there's, there's, there's the greater communication. So there's a huge number of drivers. I think it's a big mistake to think that you can pull a single lever and get a defined effect
0: the other thing that amazes me is we've been focusing on freshwater supply and only two and a half percent of the earth is covered in fresh water and, and and not all of that is accessible which always sort of takes my breath away it's something that's been said for many years but you realize what a small sort of proportion of of the the, the resources that are out there that that we're dealing with and we're, and we're focusing on there are a number of places around the world that have to use desalination, which for those that know is a quite a, an expensive process. Again, it's another very energy intensive process. But if clearly if we could access the world's oceans for water, there'd be an awful lot available. What are the real challenges here? I mean, it, it could be a silver bullet solution in my mind if we were to pursue that, or is that just fanciful? It's, desalination is interesting uh, and
1: in addition to the reasons you mentioned, I note that uh, Sir James Bevan didn't talk about desalination mm. at all in his, in his talk in March, which was kind of interesting in and of itself. We are an island. We are surrounded by a reservoir of water more than we could ever possibly need for any conceivable use. The trouble is it's salty. And if we're going to use that water, we need an efficient way, an effective way, a cost-effective way of removing the salt to make that water fit for potable and even non-potable uses. Salt is is terrible for most uh, human uses of water. We need to get that salt out of there. You're right, Chris. Desalination currently is energy intensive and expensive, although both the energy intensity and the cost per unit are decreasing quite rapidly as new lower pressure technologies are being developed. I was recently able to visit a number of desalination plants in Israel, where they're year on year decreasing the operating pressure of the systems. And for every incremental decrease in system pressure, they're achieving increases in financial and energy efficiency of the desalination process. Now, I'm not sure how far that that process can go because they will need pressure and pressure will always cost energy and money. But we're probably talking about unit costs of production Uh, under desalination that have halved in the last decade. So it's been quite remarkable in terms of technical innovation. But there are still challenges, one of which is what do you do with all the super salty wastewater that you produce by desalination, the so-called brine wastewater? Uh, Currently, what they do in Israel is they just pump it into the eastern Mediterranean and use that standard mantra of first-year civil engineering, dilution is the solution to pollution. In other words, if we stick our pollutants far enough out where nobody really cares, then that place where nobody really cares about can be an environmental sink. Well, if you're the first country to be doing that, like Israel is, it's among the first wave of countries to to depend significantly on desalinated water, that might work. But what happens when all the Mediterranean basin countries want to do that? Or if we shift our geographical gaze away from the Eastern Med and to the Arabian Sea, where many of the countries of the Gulf, the Arabian Gulf, are in that position of all increasing their dependence on desalination, they are already changing the saline balance of the Arabian Sea to detrimental uh, environmental effect. And what's more, every time they increase the salinity of their input water, they increase the technical challenge of removing that salt again. So you, you end up in a kind of a vicious circle. Your input water is increasingly salty because your output water is making it so. In a largely enclosed basin like the Arabian Sea, it's hard to see how you, you get out of that, that downward spiral. And the only reason why in other parts of the world that, that hasn't been daylighted yet is a significant problem is because the, the oceanic sinks are sufficiently big to take that uh, that extra pollution load. So I think this is a challenge that that would need to be thought about very carefully before the UK or England and Wales significantly turns to desalination as a solution. Would we want to solve one problem, a freshwater problem, at the cost of creating another one, a marine environmental catastrophe?
0: Is, Is there a tipping point that we had reached that would make us want to focus on solving that desalination waste issue that we're approaching, or are we so far from that that absolutely the right pack now is continue with the freshwater approach?
2: It's interesting to note that in the UK, actually, yes, there's quite a clearly defined tipping point, which is if you're about to run out of water and you can't think of anything else to do, then desalination is ultimately what you do. And this is what happened in the London area in the, uh, in the period of the, the London Olympics when there was a very, very dry spell, there was a risk. That effectively London was going to not run dry, but run into restrictions at the time when there was the the spotlight of the world on the country and on the city because the, the Olympics is a big deal, and it was something that people couldn't quite believe that such a thing could you know was physically possible that such a thing could happen. At that point, then you can say, right? Well, actually. We are going to commission desalination and and deal with the problems as it arises. And one thing that's worth pointing out actually is that yes, I mean we've got 1.36 billion cubic kilometers of water in the sea. It's an it's an awful lot of water. And um, that two and a half percent you mentioned, yeah, the problem with that is that that's the bit that's frozen at the top and the bottom. So uh, so it's not really that accessible. Although people do like to talk about the idea of dragging icebergs around, which I've always thought. Have you not thought the idea of bringing zero degrees sea water, fresh water, into a local ecosystem. It's not occurred to you that might be gigantically damaging to everything and it would exterminate everything in the, in the sea basin you're bringing it to. But it is in a cycle. And it's, it's something that it's, it's easy to talk, I think, in terms of, oh, are we going to use the water up? No, it's not true. We are not going to use the water up. We, are, we borrow it for a bit. But the fact is we borrow it from places which are not necessarily being replenished at the rate we're taking it out from, and we borrow it from places where the impact of doing so can be quite serious. We tend to like to use the example of chalk streams, but actually, that's not by any means the only impact. There will be lots of other places where, having reduced the flow down a water course, reduced the water available to the environment, we do have a big impact. We talk
1: about wetlands, absolutely. Eschuries. Yeah,
2: there's yeah. You've, you've got changes in chemistry of water. You've got all of this kind of stuff. But nonetheless, we do just borrow it for a bit. And effectively, what we rely on globally is a desalination system that operates through solar evaporation, clouds and precipitation. But the trigger for us to go for this kind of the the most serious option, the biggest and most expensive option, will always be about a sudden, very, very serious need. And you can't forget the financial implications of this because Chad's mentioned about the energy cost. Of of doing this. Well, of course, energy doesn't come for free. No matter how you generate it, it isn't free. And actually, there is a limit to how far you can take the efficiency of desalination, just thermodynamically. It will always take energy. You can't do it at, at zero energetic cost. So, if you produce a system which is frankly just unaffordable for people, Where you say to, in the case of the UK, the water customers say, all right, well, we're just going to put your bills up because we thought it was a good idea. The answer tends to come back as well, actually, no, think of something else that's not good enough.
0: I'd love to uh, continue sitting here. Uh, I feel like we need a whiteboard, and perhaps we could solve all, all the world's issues here. I, uh, there's much more to discuss, but I've, I've got to draw us to a close, unfortunately. And I'm quite an innovation geek. I love reading about this stuff. I, I, I love reading about the use of graphene and nanotubes and iceberg harvesting and all the funky things that people it's dream graphene up. Graphene oxide, to.
2: by the way. Graphene oxide. Yeah, oh, graphene yeah. itself. Is, <laughs> graphene itself is hydrophobic.
0: Oh, there we go. <laughs> spot, um, spot the other geeks. Yeah. <laughs> So, so to draw us to a close though, and with that in mind, I, I, I'd love to ask you a, a bit of a downbeat question, which is, what do you think is going to be the most disappointing innovation that we're going to see in this space next few years, next 10 years or so? Who's feeling brave enough to go first? Uh, well, we've already talked, I think, about, about desalination.
1: And I think it's, it's clear from the conversation that we've had that we, we see desalination as a solution that creates as many problems as it perhaps solves. But I think uh, I'm going to be a little controversial here and suggest that for me, one of the most disappointing innovations is metering. And the reason for that is that a large chunk of the sector has adopted metering as a kind of a single magic wand that can be waved around. And there are still politicians in particular who suggest that if we went from 60 or 65% uh, domestic metering penetration to 100%, that would solve the problem because the mere presence of a meter will achieve a measurable savings. Now, as a scientist, that's a bizarre statement to make because it suggests that if you go from a stage where 35 or 40% of your domestic housing stock has guesstimates of water use to one where they have actual measured water use, that will affect the savings in and of itself. In other words, the difference between a guess and a measure is somehow a savings. Now, scientifically, that's, that's a very dubious thing to say. More importantly is the suggestion that all we need to really do is focus on a universal metering program for the entire uh, housing stock of the United Kingdom and the problem will somehow go away. The fact of the matter is that there is no scientific evidence from anywhere on Earth that shows that metering in and of itself saves water. It just doesn't. What tends to happen, actually, if you look at some of the exemplar case studies, like Orange County, California, is that metering rollout comes alongside tariff reform and comes alongside massive, expensive public communication campaigns that get back to the existential dimension that Sir James was talking about in uh, in his speech earlier this year. One of the reasons why Orange County is often pointed to as an exemplar of, of how to serve more people with less water, and they are indeed in Southern California under a great deal more absolute resource pressure than we are here, is that they managed to combine a number of different policy interventions, including metering, but not just metering, to achieve a step change in the way people thought about water. So I think just waving metering around as a magic wand is something we need to stop doing, and we need to grow up a little and accept that metering is part of a portfolio of things that we need to do. Each individual intervention will be limited in what it can do for us by itself, but taken together, we can come up with powerful packages that achieve multiple gains across multiple domains: water, energy, fresh water, wastewater, etc.
0: I think that's a good call to, to broaden our sight behind or beyond what is a good initiative, but not the final part of the solution to, to, to stretch beyond to what that broader holistic package is. Patrick, how are you doing on the disappointing innovations? Have you got, have you got well, one you can share? I'll give you one to,
2: for us to finish with that is uh, almost a sort of comedy version of. So uh, I think Chad makes some really, really serious points there about the fact that you know, metering of itself isn't the answer. I'm, personally, I also feel it, it's completely necessary in the long term, the idea of simply getting a fixed price and, and, a, and a random volume and it and that we don't know what our customers it seems seems really odd that 30 years into a privatized water industry we're, we're still supplying on a guess seems weird but absolutely it doesn't of itself change what you do but no the one that i will i will give is one that i, I come across occasionally people like to suggest as a great way of saving water which is that during hot weather, water obviously evaporates from open water bodies. And so reservoirs will tend to have a certain amount of evaporation. We refer to it as precipitation, evaporation and transpiration. So PET is what we actually have to consider when, when we look at what's going into water storage. But one bright idea that people love to come up with, idea is pouring oil on the top of the reservoirs in order to stop the water from evaporating. <laughs> And as innovations go, I I think that one, well, it's uh, A, it's not necessary because the amount of evaporation is relatively small, even in hot weather because the water stays fairly cool. B, it wouldn't work because all the oil would kind of blow over to one side of the reservoir the moment there's a breeze. C, it would kill everything trying to live on the reservoir. And D, if it did work, then it would stop oxygen interchange with the air, the water would go anaerobic, and septic can be completely unusable. So I think as innovations go, then an oil slick on the top of our reservoirs is the one that I'd really like to make sure we never do
0: that. <laughs> Fantastic. More reasons not to mix oil and water. Good stuff, gents. Thanks so much for your time. I've really enjoyed the discussion. It's, it's been uh, really insightful. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on our innovation quest we hope you enjoyed the conversation and if it has sparked any thoughts on where we could work together to push the industry forwards we'd love to hear from you please do go to our website or contact us through innovation at bristolwater.co.uk